This is an episode of Life and Dev, and I have a doctor with me today. I'm so excited. Hello, <laughs> Hello doctor. <laughs> Hello. So I have Dr. Sabrina Hara with me, and she recently uh, did a talk that we were trying to do a, um, a, a question session afterwards, but didn't manage to um, for a few different reasons. But her talk was about grief and games, and so we're going to talk about grief and games, and maybe your doctor Arbeit. If you're willing to talk about it, she's shaking her head in agreement, which is good. Yes, yeah, so settle in for this episode. I'm Elise Terranova, and uh, thanks for coming back. So, hi, Sabrina. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Yay. In, I'm actually in your office, so it's a pleasure for me to be here. Yes. <laughs> this feels like it's been a long time coming, so it's really good to finally sit down yeah. with you. It's really good that we got up and did that and or, or are doing this um, because, uh, yeah, I was looking forward to chatting to you earlier about this and yeah. uh, it was quite a pleasant talk at the gallery Schaustelle in Berlin and we had a quite interesting Q&A afterwards so I had the pleasure of, of presenting parts of my research on grief and games and apparently um, particularly uh, the method that I developed to work with grievers to make them part of a game development process which I'd love you to take us through. So I've seen a little bit of some of your talk and I was like, oh, okay, I don't want to go too far in this because I'd love to hear it firsthand. And then I think the the talk that I saw was on YouTube, which was the Gotham, no, Gothenburg, GGC. And I thought it... I think it was actually the Gotland Game Conference. Gotland. But Gotham, I think is... is it's maybe better. <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was quite cool. So um, it was at the, on the campus, um, the Swedish campus on the wonderful island of Gotland. Um, and that was the second time that I gave that talk. Before mm -hmm. that, I gave it at GDC and kind of like grow a little bit. And uh, it's it's real challenge for me to give this talk because it's also quite personal. It's super personal. The reasons why... Um, I started this whole thing was also because of my own experiences as a um, as a briefed mom, uh, as someone who lo lost a child, and uh, in the aftermath, uh, coming to realize that the worst thing about being a survivor and getting a new life after your kid as an ex-mom is actually the reactions and the responses of other people. Yeah. So the helplessness around this topic and this huge silence and taboo is what really stuck with me and. So I was just looking for outlets and just where to speak about this because mm -hmm. I was a bit jealous of moms with alive children being able to talk about their kids and me as someone who has also given birth um, and who has also been through this whole pregnancy stuff, <laughs> not to be able to do that. So yeah. that was kind of like my starting point when I realized the absence of this topic in my favorite media and as we know, games is no exception and mother's narratives in general are more or less... There's an absence of this yeah. altogether is kind of the feeling that I get. Yes, um, right. So so how long is it taking you to go, from, uh, to go through this process to think about, oh, I actually really want to work with this topic? So right away, for me, it was clear that as soon as I couldn't see myself represented I thought that there's there's an opportunity to get a voice to go out there and just find a voice mm -hmm. um, and do whatever is necessary take whatever med medium is, is there whatever medium is close and as someone who grew up with 
gaming in my household, in my, um, you know, youth with a gamer dad who owned <laughs> all the consoles and sometimes let us play also. Um, <laughs> sometimes let us play, uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I was, yeah, I was very much into, into this medium and I, I realized there's an opportunity to just do something that's maybe more interesting for a lot of people who are going through this experience of, of losing someone close. Um, yeah. I was not only thinking about my own experience, I was taking that as a, as a stepping stone towards realizing, okay, there's a lot of experiences in this area that are just not represented. Mm -hmm. And so this was um, why I started this topic as a researcher, because uh, that sort of naturally um, converged yeah. these two interests of my personal life and then um, something with media, um, <laughs> like media scholarship, um, so I, I thought, why not, give it, uh, why not give it a shot and see what happens? And I luckily had some real supportive environment that encouraged me to, to pursue that. Back in 2011, when I started the project, we were still taught that games can never be um, drama games <laughs> who would like to play a game called Anna Karenina you know mm -hmm. who would like to to play as a suicidal person uh, especially as a woman right like games need to be fun games need to be challenging in this flowy way mm -hmm. in this um, just you know the right balance between challenge and um, boredom, the right learning curve, there was this paradigm of creating the ultimate experience for players that is challenging, but not challenging in the wrong way. Yeah, this wonderful flow graph that right. everything should just magically fit yes. within. And experiences outside of that, well, they're not really games, right? Yeah, exactly. So there was this corporate attitude to game making that uh, I didn't understand because for me, games were always art or it was clear for me that games had the potential to be art. Let's yeah. put it that way. So, but I couldn't see any, anything like the thing I wanted to see. Mm -hmm. Anything that would, you know, address my experience and the experience of many other women and, and parents and dads, you know. So, yeah, that's how it started. And that's why I engaged in this research. And... Um, I didn't start out uh, making making games or making a grief game. I started out with from a theoretical perspective, from media studies perspective. I I used to study English studies and communication, mm -hmm. so so I didn't feel solid or grounded enough to do something practical. But I <laughs> I got in, involved at the same time also with the Austrian board game scene, so that's where I also made my first steps in that area. And and I had this this weird fantasy of one day maybe making these two two fields go together in my work, and that happened when I got this very surprising job offer from ITU Copenhagen, where I moved and got involved with the Copenhagen Game Collective. And the rest is sort of history because there, there I learned all the, the crafts of, of how to design exactly the kind of experiences I want to make. And then I had the chance to put that into my research. So my doctoral thesis ended up being a mixture between analyzing 
the representation of grief and loss in games and making a game that is tackling the experience of four women who have lost a pregnancy as a case study for that. So it's two, it has two sides. And at the Schaustelle, I was talking about the, the process of how to um, work with grievers or how we worked with grievers in, in this game, how my design team and me tackled this responsibility or this challenge of getting ideas and visions and experiences in of people who neither relate to games in a positive way because games are boring and games are violent. We mm -hmm. know that already. So yeah. we had this challenge of making something completely new that would appeal to them, right? Because the, how, the way I saw it was that if we succeeded in making a game that appeals to them, that was the actual goal. That was our, our target. Mm -hmm. um, didn't care so much about the gameness or the the theories of flow or <laughs> no i mean you're doing it for a different purpose it's yeah entirely entirely right. different and um, copenhagen game collective makes kind of quite playful experiences so um when you say that you're kind of working with in this kind of framework were the things that you're working on relatively playful or how did it kind of fit within the sphere thing were they more experience-based or where did it kind of fit so in the beginning, there was kind of two parallel tracks. Mm -hmm. So I would refer to the Copenhagen playful track as some kind of apprenticeship that I did on the side <laughs> while I was doing the serious grief studies. I think you probably <laughs> needed some lighting up on right. the side sometimes, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, I would say that it was more like a, a pastime activity for me to just relax and make uh, silly things. Yeah. Um, made a... Uh, um, for instance, at the Excel Game Jam, we made a, a silly wearable experience um, about my my vague memories of church going as a kid. Um, <laughs> it's called Pray Prayer Absolution, and you pray competitively against each other to win uh, <laughs> innocence points. So we can, yeah, things like that, which had more or less nothing to do with the other side of yeah. of my work, but it was kind of refreshing because I could. Of course, I incidentally transferred some of that knowledge or, or craftsmanship to the other side of my work. And, and there are also more, um, I mean, from, from the things I know of Copenhagen Game Collective, I know only a few things, but um, they, they look kind of more like wearable tech or lighter tech combined with physical movement in a playful kind of way. So it's, you know, usually it looks like you usually have people in the same physical environment and you play together in sort of like a local co-op kind of um well it can be competitive as, as as well um but that's kind of what it looks like from the outside yeah like i feel like the the main focus is on using materials and technologies in ways that were not intended for mm -hmm. so if you look at at a game that uh, my dear design partner at the Copenhagen Game Collective, Ida Toft, was involved in. It's called um, Jelly Stomp. And what's happening that um, the people who created Jelly Stomp just took um, regular um, controllers, like PlayStation Move controllers, and put them into condoms and then stomped on them underwater. So it's <laughs> definitely not what they're made for, right? Um, 
with JS Charles, do you have like a milder version of, of how not to play with PlayStation controllers? Because it's quite can be quite violent. Yes. Um, so the idea is to to uh, to look at the affordances of tech and, and playful tech and break with that mm -hmm. sort of or expand it. Um, and and I think that this is this is also where. The, what play is all about that you that you have a situation and uh you uh you play around with that situation you play around with that material at hand and you're not following instructions so it's also a little bit lighter as well you can use your your deep heavy thinking brain on your research right. yeah, yeah yeah but it's still it's also the process of designing such a playful experience is also can also be quite deep and reflective in the sense of like how do you want to break that technology in meaningful ways what kind of commentary are you making by doing that yeah. um, there's one one game also by the collective that's the v vrr hacker um, game that is based on this hollywood idea of hacking and it works uh, as a spectacle basically it's designed as a spectacle where one person is wearing a vr headset and just button mashes the the keyboard <laughs> to move forward in in the cyberspace so it's kind of using the affordances of vr and and uh, computer posture in front of the computer to make a very ridiculous spectacle <laughs> so as someone who plays that it's it's just half the experience someone who watches this kind of like cable heavy sort of cyborg creature um pressing all the buttons it looks super technical and you're just going forward yeah, right nice. exactly so, <laughs> it's a nice contradiction so it's sort of like making also fun of this idea that we are is is the, is the next frontier and it will grow you know. <laughs> as someone who did a like research paper on, on vr as well and we will, yeah growing yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of making fun of this uh, the fact that i mean vr is nothing new it, uh, it has been explored uh, the frontier has been explored in the 90s already we have, we have forgotten all about for instance feminist uh, psychedelic art projects in, in vr and, and now we're talking about the new uh you know uh, disembodiment of the self through vr and like the new <laughs> um i don't know holidays and porn and what what not you know it's it's just uh yeah um, it's it's a it's a field worth commenting on it's a political field and i think that through silly play experiences that can be quite um, heavy on um, or just like disarming the politics uh, or the politicalized assumptions about next generation tech right <laughs> yeah that's um yeah that's what uh what i what i learned from <laughs> <just> <laughs> good okay yeah, um and uh maybe that was completely uh distracting from from the grief scholarship that was also happening right next to it um but it was um so so how could i there are certainly some parallels between working with um with grievers to make a game about the experiences and and engaging in playful design um You have to kind of get them to engage at all at first. So did yes. you kind of use some of those playful techniques? Right. And this was that was also a very important thing to realize. How do I get them interested? Because I didn't want them to work for me. 
right? Yeah. So one thing that I talked about also at this um, Schaustelle talk was muse-based design, which is an approach that I used and uh, appropriated for for this very group I was working with. Mm -hmm. So muse-based design is basically the idea that we have designers in a participatory game design setting. You have designers who are the design experts, and then you have participants who are an expert in their own experiences, in their field, in their professional, in a certain professional area, what whatnot. And the people I asked to participate in design were expert in grief and were expert in their emotional lives and their relationship to their dead children. So I wanted them to to feel that they could, you know, be confident about that expertise and share it. Mm -hmm. And that was also the motivation why they joined the project in the first place, because they felt really welcome and and grateful also to to be invited to share this expertise but they were also confused and terrified about the idea of making a game because again yeah. there were there weren't there was no no relationship yeah. so in muse-based design you have um the designers which are thought of as artists and then you have the muses um the participants who are thought of as muses who inspire that process so this creates a role distinction between um, two different kinds of responsibility. On the one hand, there's the designer artist who is the one who is creating the game. And then there is a muse who, whose job is to, you know, inspire <laughs> and, and contribute to the project through, through her expertise. Does that also help because people... Some people would also get very heavily involved in the project at some point, the, the muses. And maybe this kind of gives them more right. of a space to work with them when you kind of say these these are actually the borders as well. Like when, you know, like uh, right. when you're writing a book about someone, I'm taking this from my, from my mother. <laughs> she was writing a book about someone um, who was related to someone else. And so the person who still knew the relationship was like, oh, they would never would have done that. And so like, what area can you take creative license with? And right. maybe does that kind of give you the ability yes. to separate, to, to take the creative license in areas that you need to? Yes, exactly. So the thing is that uh, what was most important is to, to communicate that they're not responsible for the end product. Yeah, of course. And that they are not responsible for making a game because that is something that they found scary. They were also quite skeptical about the idea of even making a game as a as a game about their experiences. So sort of making them, putting them in charge of their own expertise and nothing else sort of alleviated that sort of inner conflict or the insecurity that some of them expressed fear that they couldn't help me. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't be able to help me. And you're like, I don't need you to make a game. Right. I just need you to talk to me about right. what you're experiencing. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so by addressing them in terms of experts, yeah. that helped a lot in, in exactly bringing forth what I needed, right? Mm -hmm. so, so we were then that created this, this idea of, of eye-level relationship. We had two different responsibilities and we were both, both were needed to complete that project and they were it was also our job to amuse the muse it's not just you know 
us being the creators and then walking away with the inspiration, but we also we had this ambition to create something that would be meaningful for them. So, but not the ambition of of them um, having to comment or having to to participate. Because I think in participatory design, there's one. This breaks with traditional participatory design, where it's all about handing the tools and handing the the practice to the participants, right? Where it's in a democratic process, the idea is that in a traditional way, you're empowered when you get the tools. But what what do you do when you don't want to be empowered in that way? <laughs> and we had that situation. Yeah. So so it was that this is exactly where I, where I could work with the playful methods, and I'm getting them to, for instance, um, engage in modeling exercises and working with with metaphors and symbols, so they would. Um, think about their. I I would invite them to to think about their mother-child relationship in terms of a planet that they could visit and only they could visit, mm-hmm. and then come back from this kind of space journey to this planet and report to us what it's like being there, and describe all the kind of territory and uh, aspects of that planets that they could think of. So that would already create a link to game design because games also have a space and games also have, you know, uh, an atmosphere and um, and characters and, and maybe vegetation, who knows, <laughs> certainly rules and, and timeness and stuff like that. So, yeah, and an aesthetic of, the, of, of sorts as well. Yes, um, and, and uh, the, the women were, were able to sometimes even describe the sounds that they were hearing oh, on wow. that planet. So that really helped us find a style for our game. So so we didn't only have mechanics in terms of what you could do on that planet and and an art style in terms of what what would be there on this planet or how this planet would look, but there's also some some other aesthetics element uh, aesthetic elements that we could work with from from this uh workshop did anyone at the end really actually want to get involved in the in the game through going through this process where they did they have their mind changed about games in general or that they really wanted to be involved in in this project or another project similar to it so in the moment i think that they were very much in the moment of this of this exercise and i don't think that they that the um imagined that as a game yet mm-hmm. so there was this very intense and vivid and um, respectful conversation about the planets and how they functioned um, and there was some one of the planets in particular that was quite gamey already so the participant chose to already implement rules and, and to so like the and the, yeah, and actually just <laughs> also talked about the planet in terms of in terms of a game. Mm-hmm. It's like so in my game you do this and that, right? So so some of the participants moved further in that design in that game design process already, and others chose to not implement any time factor, for instance, or said things like you can't do anything on this planet because it was like a wishful. Um, sort of utopian planet where everything was possible. And as you're describing this, I'm getting the feeling um, I think I might have um, 
had it d- differently in my in my brain. But it sounds like that there were um, this process was quite early on in the project. Yes. Um, okay. Cool. Um, so it wasn't that you had an infrastructure already to kind of uh, use these experiences in a certain way or to interpret these experiences in a different way and directly. Um, you didn't know what you were going to find. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So so it was that was quite. That was quite vital to the whole process okay, that, cool. that mm-hmm. it was really based off their imaginations. The whole direction of the game, which was quite scary for me because I like control. <laughs> <laughs> and um, how many women did you let <laughs> led into this process? <laughs> it was four women. So okay, it was well. a perfect group yeah. in a, uh, to facilitate a very intense uh, I was four hour workshop. Um, and that was the starting point for what we were going to do and what we were going to focus on. Mm-hmm. And then it was quite a challenge to also settle for like because there were so many different um, elements and symbols that came up in these planets that we had like such a hard time choosing what mm-hmm. to go with because there was so much inspiration. So we then settled for for one of the metaphors that was mentioned in on the planet where we had quite long discussions about uh it was a um a sheep story so a mother sheep and a lamb on a magical meadow um and so this woman identified herself as the mother sheep looking across a river mm mm-hmm. To the other side and she represented the other side as a, a lego um, tigers <laughs> and these were the that was the where the past relatives that she was still looking at um, and she was pondering and then we were pondering about what would be what are the options of that sheep mm-hmm. why is she staying there why is she looking across the river can she go through the river what would happen would she transform into a tiger as well um what is the river made of things like that so it was very evocative of all these conversations about the relationship between the uh, life and the dead um and so and so this is what we what we took as a as a premise for our design um scenario in the end We're also dealing with people from different religious backgrounds as well. Not quite. I think that the group was very homogeneous in the sense that it was a self-help group from Vienna in uh and it's is strongly women-led, very white, quite catholic. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that 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 also reflected a bit about like the problem of where to find a group to share your experiences uh, with, um, like your loss experiences. I was thinking of, um, yeah, the difficulty, added difficulty of maybe um, choosing a different, um, or, or dealing with different identity aspects. What if you're queer? What if you're, what if you're, uh, you know, a person of color who is, Who's maybe not not showing up to these groups because they're um, alienated even more, and uh, so I think that there was quite an intersection that these women shared. Yeah, or if people um, have really different understandings or ideas or beliefs about right. what happens afterwards as well, how that would shape exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I guess maybe when you're grieving, you naturally go towards people who you have a similar outlook with 
They don't know. Yeah, yes. But that would be hmm. maybe it's easier to find a group of people um, from a existing cohort of of people with similar yeah religious beliefs. I will say though that none of the women addressed religiousness or afterlife explicitly in terms of a um, beyond metaphors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that it's also there's research on on continuing bonds with the dead and um, on doesn't have to be you don't have to be very religious in order to cultivate a a representation of the dead as a no, sort of like of course uh, not I was just wondering right. if there was similar imagery that might yeah. perk up because of a d- similar background oh yeah but there's some there are some similarities what I found interesting is that all of them uh, all of these images revolved around nature mm-hmm. there were campfires there was a campfire there was a cave which I found interesting this image of the of a cave and inside of the cave there's another cave where the baby lives wow that sounds strangely familiar <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and then what? What I found really touching is that uh, you play that game because that was the gamey mm-hmm. one. You play that game by feeding the baby until it is big enough to be left behind in the in the cave. Okay, you don't have to push it out of the cave or anything, right? <laughs> <laughs> actually, the opposite is, is okay. True. So, so it's then. actually an anti-birth. Oh, an anti-birth. Okay. Yeah, because, because you're, you're feeding it and you leave it there when it's yeah, ready. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So it then it it stays there and you leave the planet together with the rest of your family so everyone who is who is related to that baby in some way uh, has to find a way how to feed it and find a strategy how to feed it some of them might not be able to go inside of the inner cave right sorry <laughs> <laughs> but i do like that metaphor though that you know at some point you have to s- uh, sever a tie for the you know for the child to kind of get to be their own person inside their own little cave, but the, the cave thing is I find uh, yeah uh, that, that's so true. Why have I not thought about that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe it's just a stage. <laughs> but it's a yeah, it's a nice idea. Um, yeah, yeah, deciding at what point you leave yes. and give them time to to be yeah and this and the game that would be uh quantifiable because that would be the time when the baby is big enough oh so it's based on size of the child Mm -hmm. okay right yes so it's literally growing until you can leave it behind i just somehow imagine some sort of weird ui where you see like the food amounts going up and down on the side Yes, I, you said game, and I, I and and that they were trying to gamify it, and I just was thinking, yeah, there's some sort of growth meter in there or a food oh, yeah, meter, like lots, like twenty meters every. <laughs> um, yeah, and the progress bars. Did they talk about scale too? Like that sounds one sounds like. I don't know that it could be any size, and I kind of like to imagine how big big the cave is. Like this is like a little house. It's like I think. a little house. Okay. Yeah. So, so it was represented uh, with two fur pieces. There's one, one uh, very fluffy one in the middle. It's the most sensitive one, and then around that, um, there's there's a small, uh, there's a bigger fur piece, and uh, and there are several exits. So, yeah. <laughs> the only thing that cannot move is the baby. Really, it's just growing, and that's the only movement. But everyone else can sort of like. Um, you know, 
go around and do the chores. I guess that sounds like something a little bit similar to it's kind of like in uh, we talked about this a moment ago, which is like being being the kid and being a person in a family. They can do whatever they like, but at the end of the day, you still do your own thing entirely. You know, oh, yeah. people kind of come to you and try and get from you what they need or kind of um, try and hope that they can shape you in some way, but you do your own thing no matter what because... So true. And then there's also one thing that was also brought up in this systemic example is that like people might be frustrated with each other because they, they have different capacities of how, how long to stay in there. Like if, even if if they even want to go in there, maybe they're just like, okay, I'm done with this. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not going in and feeding, but they still have to contribute something. They still have to collectively deal with that, which is, I guess, telling of the dynamic uh, dynamics around uh, grief work um, that, yeah, everyone has their own pace and it can be really frustrating uh, to, to deal with, there's a lot of, for instance, couples break up after they lose a child um, because just because they have assumptions about what should be done, what is the right way to go, and, and the um, different assumptions about how much to engage, how much to cry, how much to talk. Yeah, and when to do those things as well, I guess, exactly. if you're not vibing at the same time. Yeah. It must be really hard. Or whether you're deciding to even do those things. Oh, yeah. um, so It's just a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, and so it's it's kind of a lovely sim of how this... <laughs> the reason why we didn't make this is because really of the scope. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a lot there. <laughs> we had, I mean, there's some real time, I, I mean, some real life pressures. We had a very, very real uh, three months of development time. There was no, you know, that already excludes some of the very good ideas <laughs> that we had. Um, so... So we kind of gave up quickly on that project because you would, uh, yeah. All of these people in that system, of course, had agency. And how could, how can you ever, <laughs> you know, model that? I think that one might be uh, a good one for a live situation where you play for a 24-hour period. <laughs> right, yeah. Or some, maybe a lab would yep. be good. Yep. The baby in the cave lab. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> So going back to what you, you did make, um, how would you describe it to someone who hadn't played before? So what sort of, um, do you describe it as a game festival? Yes, um, I would say so, because we used very gamey technology. We used Unity. We used um, a mouse for, for <laughs> the controls. So it's, very, it's a very sim simple screen-based, um, in, in that sense, very traditional video game. Um, it is a linear game, so you're going through certain puzzles from the beginning to the end, and it's extremely colorful. So again, you're this sheep mother on the meadow, and in the beginning you are with your little lamb, and you have to find out how to pick magical flowers from the meadow and feed it to your lamb, and then something will happen. There's also the option that you use the right mouse button to eat the flowers yourself, but nothing really changes. It's not really your focus at the moment. So um, we, we um, designed the game so in the beginning you would even forget about yourself. So it's, it's really much about care, caring for, for the small one, caring for the cute one. <laughs> um, and making, basically making the world go round by paying attention to, to your little one. 
Um, and it's on purpose that you that you forget about self care. That's really something we wanted to achieve. Um, and but at a certain point, um, there will be an earthquake, and we really made that so it's really random, and you don't connect that earthquake to the act of feeding. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a challenge in the process. But then at some point, uh, this earthquake happens, and your lamb is gone, and then what do you do? Because all your mechanics, all the controls were based on that act of caring and feeding. Mm-hmm. Mm, so then comes a very difficult puzzle that you have to solve in order to remember your time together. And it's never quite explained what happened to, to the lamb. That's really up to you. And that that was also a point where I found it very interesting to talk to players and see what they how they interpret that situation. How was that? Um, it was it was cool because people had very interesting different narratives on that they projected on why the lamb was gone. One of them assumed that it had fallen in the river. Others assumed that it had been, you know, eaten by wolves or just, you know, disappeared or abandoned me. <laughs> so oh. um, <laughs> it was it was clear that that. Uh, there's a lot of work going on in the minds of the players projecting different narratives depending on their own life situations and depending on their own current emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, what I found interesting is this feeling of guilt. This question, have I done something wrong? Is Did I break the game? Um, Which is also why you needed to disconnect it somehow as well as possible from the feeding. Right, yeah. exactly. So, so because there was, in the beginning we had we hadn't done it well enough and one of the players um, assumed that she had poisoned her lamb. Oh, no. Uh, which is also kind of cool. I mean, you can... These are exactly the thoughts uh, and and guilty narratives you have as a bereaved parent. This is... what Have I done something wrong? Has I Like, where have I um, failed as a mother? Um, I could probably have, you know, like this idea what what could I have done to save my child is something that's on your mind. So... It's something that is uh, that's a cool emotional, you know, result, if you will, because it makes sense in that in that narrative. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a hard one. <laughs> yeah, and it's also, I mean, what I also found cool is the idea that um, people were taking that as a as a conversation starters to talk about their own different responses to the game. So when I showed this game then to the participants they would play together and have different interpretations as well and then exchange their views on that mm-hmm. so so no i think this happened to the lamb no um I, you know and then from that you have already have a metaphor to talk about your own life and and this is what we wanted so it's quite we don't explain much about the game itself when you play it you there's no text or any dialogue or narrative in the in a textual sense. In the, there, there are no linguistic items, except mm-hmm. in the very tutorial phase where you learn all the controls and you actually get an overview of everything. So you see that it's possible to, to press the right mouse button as well and to remember that afterwards when, you, when you're in the state of loss, when your lamb has just gone and the left mouse button is just not doing anything. Yeah, except so you for, can try and discover what... Right, yeah. yeah. That's nice. So, so that was important to kind of um, work with 
control and control loss is a literal metaphor to uh, get across this feeling of of attachment and bereavement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of nice too. I mean, it's awful. There's nothing else you can do, so you might as well self-nourish. <laughs> right, exactly. Like yeah, it's like it. feeding yourself as a... It's like, um, I'm, al- I'm always pissed off when games don't represent survival as an option after death or after loss. Um, so... Well, loss is also something that happens at the, often at the beginning of a game before you've actually started as well. Is like yeah. the character setup is this man has lost his wife and children tragically, and then you know he does something else, and now and that's kind imagine, of like yeah, now just imagine you're dramatically emotionally involved in the character. <laughs> yeah, but it seems to be like the that's like the the tutorial bit. Then that's already happened. This character is already formed, and now you go and do something else, right? Um, but yeah, to go through that process. Yeah, but even in games where where attachment and loss is represented uh, well, I talked to a, a maker of the game Shelter, where you play as a badger mom, and you have five little badgers that you really care care about and which you feed. But then it of course happened to me because it's a 3D game and I suck at the controls. Of course, I lost all my badgers in the wild, and so <laughs> it was a. Um, after 10 minutes I was a bereaved badger like fully bereaved so what do I do like do I survive no because the controls are so ingrained with the feeding of your young that you can't eat the apples yourself that you're supposed to feed to your children so that was the end after you lost your five kids yes I had my my life was basically over I was waiting for the hawk to also get me because the the food that I could procure before the death of my children was meant for them I was mm-hmm. meant to feed them. And this is what the game allows. I cannot eat the apples myself to get fat and get a new sexy lover and make nude kids. What you would do as a badger. Your life um, apparently just ends. Right, yeah. exactly. So so this is not like, this made me angry because of this common stereotypical narrative of the bereaved mom who is now a mess and can't, you know, get her life back. And, and this is, and that's... Um, the makers of this game did not intend that. Yeah, but that, they just hadn't thought a, about it. That was, yes, exactly. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's an emergent sort of consequence of the rules. Yeah, it's not something that they designed for, but it is still there as a as a legitimate narrative that harms me as a brief parent, which is like sad for everyone involved. But it is it is also creating this sort of subtle stereotype. This kind of repeated over and over again that losing a child is the, le- le- the worst loss and you can never you can never be whole again you can never be a person again and <laughs> there is no life afterwards oh. exactly like, yeah it's, it's don't, don't really try don't even try to survive yeah. don't, don't feed yourself there you yeah. have no agency to feed yourself with anymore once your child is gone exactly oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then so i had this uh that psychotic behavior of just throwing my dead foxes around that i hunted in that game and uh and just like you know throwing apples and uh or just walking around with an apple in my mouth just because you know like Basically, an insanity narrative. <laughs> yeah. 
I guess this is what happens with a lot of games when we don't consider different narratives. And right, yeah, it's, it's just the same thing that yeah. gets repeated again. Yes. So even if they've tried to do something really different, yeah, by missing something which is super important. Yeah, yeah. but that's the principle of of design. It's casual design, right? Yes. If you don't think about, and a game must have an end, end yes. and a, a lose condition. So <laughs> yeah, but if you if you um if you don't think about it, then it's probably repeating something that you didn't want, right? Mm. So if you don't. If you if you don't look at the at the diversity of the experiences that emerge from your narrative, then yeah, then you're casually designing something you don't want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I find this fascinating because it's really going into this area of of media literacy where where I used to work before being in games, and I think that just um, this is this is um. Media critique and media literacy is something that we're really lacking as game designers uh, most of the time. And yeah, it's, it's also, I mean, it is also a question of resources, how much you can think about that. But it's really just a matter also of getting consultants in and working with people that are not maybe mm. in your field, but, but that have something to do with the kind of experience you're trying to, to represent I was going to say that too, having a depth of experience, even if people are working in your field, making sure that you have a depth of experience within your team is also right. really important as well. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And we're trying really hard with our new project to do that, where we can actually actually go out and consult people on, uh, on how, how well we're doing in, in getting our narratives across in the way we want to, because nothing sucks more than you wanting to convey something that's just not being heard. Mm -hmm. Yep. And from the, like from your, your takeaways from your, your PhD, like, and, and your grief game going from that into new projects, what sort of things can you bring with you from that experience? Like, is this muse concept one that you're, that you kind of rehash a little bit? You said you're kind of working with external consultants. Is it a similar process or? Well, that's that's not that's really a different pro process right now because we so in the new project we we have a different setup. I had the freedom with the with the grief game project to uh, not only work with with a group of of unique participants who came in from outside, but also a group of design students. So we were quite a big team, all in all. In a new project, which it's just two of us, and we are. Um, we're doing everything from scratch and um, consulting with external people who are just expert in their field. So mm -hmm. more specifically, I'm working with narrative and interactive fiction in this new project. And I just want to, um, because this is also quite new for me, um, I want to get the most out of the, the strategies and tools I'm using um, to convey this this relationship that's at the center of this game. So um, it's one thing that I'm taking away, though, is more in terms of content, in terms of the structures of how video games can represent attachment and loss. Because in this new video game uh, that's called Minded, we're working with um, the idea of a post-labor society in which you play as a, as a kind of spectator or like a voyeur on a mother-daughter relationship. Uh, 
that is a bit troubled because the mother is terminally ill and she's also gonna uh, die in this game. So it's a bit it's it's zooming into these dynamics of what what do we have to do as game developers to to uh, prepare this attachment mm -hmm. and then also to um, yeah what are the elements that are needed for players to um, sympathize or empathize with the characters like how much do you have to build up this attachment story before the loss sets in that's a challenge that um, I think is uh, as kind of a continuity from the last project mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> uplifting topics always <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm really fascinated with this uh, with this proximity of love and loss uh, maybe because I have so many uh, deaths in my family and I, I see it as a summer, summer um, sort of con um, I want it to be a, an ordinary subject I want it to be accessible and, and not grave in this um, in 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 a sense that makes us want to run away and hide under the table and not talk about it. I want it to be part of life because it is, and uh, and there's this this idea: how can we uh, make this awareness of death in life um, just more you know casual and more more accessible? Yeah, maybe um, more honest as well. I think we have yeah. really trouble talking about grief in honest yeah. ways. And also a bit more silly. I mean, in, in this game, because we're, we're talking about the future of, of la a laborless society in Denmark, we're, we're not talking about uh, the AI as a self-conscious -con um, force, that is, uh, but an AI that is just regulating uh, tax services and funeral services and stuff like that more efficiently, <laughs> but also fundamentally misunderstanding human beings. So we have something like um, a food delivery website that looks exactly like the funeral coffin delivery website because it's just good game you know that's just good website design according to the <laughs> ai and that's what you know humans like mm -hmm. so it's super silly also this universe that and an aging population where those websites get more and more, more visited <laughs> right i mean it's it's basically working uh, up algorithms that are based on what we're feeding to the internet now mm -hmm. so so um yeah it's gonna be silly and uh And it's going to be tragic in the sense that um, where, where will efficiency and you know, this efficiency paradigm lead us in the future? And maybe there, is, there are aspects of human life where we don't want efficiency to be, you know, the ruling paradigm. And I mean, <laughs> the children aren't terribly efficient if you look at <laughs> time yes. and resources. So right. you know, maybe yeah. looking at that way, is, yeah, yeah, I can see why that would not work so, so but, well. <laughs> but right now we have this kind of like talk about emotions and AI being becoming more emotional. And <laughs> at the same time, everything is an, an app that quantifies our life, that tracks everything, every move, <laughs> we, every step we make, right? Like now we have a catchy tune. <laughs> um <laughs> Yes, and, and I think that that's, that's leading somewhere and it's leading into a very weird future. <laughs> I can't disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think on that note, we should wrap up. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, um, yeah, dystopian is all hell. It sounds great. <laughs> it's not really dystopian, though, because, I mean, the challenge in this project is to, to stay... Um, To, to create a balance between dystopian weirdness and 
um, and the fact that it will be much easier. It will be more efficient in the sense that we don't have to to work to live, right? We have more time to spend with our near and dear and our friends and and our hobbies and and stuff like that. So I think we we have it's so difficult for us to to imagine a world in which is neither dystopian nor utopian. Mm-hmm. We always tend to go in one way. It's like either you know either we are we're ending up in hell or like it will be heaven you know no i don't actually i think that's that's quite boring i think that's an elvis costello song too <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so so i think that that does is that is a really really interesting design challenge to mm-hmm. imagine a world where you don't have this binary ideas like what is the what is the future of of gender what is the future of of mother child relationships in in 80 years so many things will have changed mm-hmm. but what um and yes and how do you deal with illness in times like that too? right how will that change yeah. as well so i've i'm doing right now a lot of research on um dharma technology and and tattoos for instance and and pain um patches and all these you know technologies <laughs> that are coming up and that are being developed right now Your uh, your history must look great on your computer. <laughs> really, yeah. she looks like she's into really dark shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I, I think I think my computer believes I'm a six year old man. Um. <laughs> okay, yeah. researching for the future, yeah, future exactly, proofing. Yeah. yeah. I don't have that kind of salary, though, sadly. Maybe yeah. in the future. <laughs> Maybe yeah. in a labelist future. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm not sure how like how much this labor idea is now. Um, it's more, it's going away. I mean, it's it's you know, um, labor in the sense of of the capitalist the capitalist kind of labor we have now. But maybe it's pushing to a new. Um, a new kind of capital, right? Like social capital, cultural capital. There's no way that in 80 years all the hierarchies and privileges we have now is, are going away. There's, it's just where does it shift to? That's the question that um, I'm trying to explore with the, the game. And, and it's quite fascinating. I feel quite privileged also to be able to, to work on such a game um, that, that gives me that freedom to you know, think about uh, such questions. Um, And uh, yeah, and and also one thing that's also important is um, when I look at at sci-fi and all the the research material that I'm combing to find references, uh, sci-fi of the future is always very male-dominated. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Women in the future exist um, mostly of secretaries and holograms and mm-hmm. and i think this Blade is not for example was just like oh <laughs> gonna see that yeah, oh. yeah don't get me started yeah um but uh so so it was surprisingly different difficult for me to find references mm-hmm. and this is also what what makes that kind of research interesting because the sky's the limit of what, can, what you can imagine i just don't believe that men will be that relevant in the future um <laughs> which is why we have two casual female characters in the in the game future is female 
No, I don't think so. I think <laughs> the future is intersectional. I like that idea better. Yeah. I like that idea much better. Yes. Thank you so much for today. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It was great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so that was Life and Dev. That was Dr. Sabine Hara. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed any of the episodes, please leave a comment or give us a rating on iTunes or however you listen. would love to have your feedback. Get in touch. Um, so we're at lifeanddev.com. I'm also on Twitter as lifeanddevpod. Uh, imaginary underscore lines, if you like. Um, get, but get back to me any way you like, and I'll um, endeavor to um, get back to you too. Thanks for listening. And give Until it next five time. five stars. <laughs> <laughs>